There's a, an, an air of vulnerability that comes off you. Why is that? Say more about that. Say more about it. Is that one of your fucking psychotherapist questions? <laughs> So we've made our way to Donamede in Dublin 13. We are close to the home of this week's guest, Damien Dempsey. This is, of course, our final show of the series. Killian, this is our last road trip of the year together. How are you feeling? I'm feeling lots of things, Rich. Um, it's late at night, so I'm feeling incredibly cold in this car. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of astonished that we're already coming to the end of the series, uh, this first season of episode. Um, but more than anything, I'm genuinely really, really excited to go and chat to Damien. Yeah, as am I. Now, I don't know how much I really need to say to introduce Damien Dempsey. He is obviously a singer-songwriter. He grew up around here. But I think describing him as that somehow feels like you're kind of selling him short a little those familiar with him and in particular anyone familiar with his live shows you'll know exactly what I mean by that and it's partly through those live shows that he's gotten this like this almost iconic status I think you Mm. could say particularly here in Dublin now we're speaking to him um, at a really exciting time of the year presumably for him and and it's maybe the time of year that most people associate with him because in the build up to Christmas every year he plays a series of gigs in Vicar Street they seem to have this hugely I don't know profound impact on fans of his and the first one of those six gigs is just 10 days away now be honest I'd been hearing about these gigs for quite a while now I've never experienced one but I always found the way that they were described a little bit I don't know I was a bit curious to learn more because people start using words like I just did like profound or as being almost like a religious experience and that's kind of difficult to get your head mm. around when you're, you're like you're talking about a music gig But then I saw the documentary Love Yourself Today earlier this year and I just got it. It's a documentary that's partly about fans of Damien's who all have been through some really difficult experiences in their own lives. And it's partly a concert film of those Vicar Street gigs. And once you see how the audience responds to him in this like hugely, really emotional, like clearly kind of cathartic way, you understand. Completely, Rich. I was the exact same. And... Then you watch the film and you see people there in Vicar Street either with their partner or their family and people are crying, people are like really, really like physically embracing each other and you, you just kind of get it as you said. And I was actually speaking to someone about this a couple of weeks ago um, and they said their friend's family had gone through this really, really big loss a couple of years ago and ever since then they've gone collectively as a family to one of these gigs each Christmas and it's like this kind of two hour long moment of emotional outpouring for them and what it means for them is that they can then put all that really big emotion to one side and then go and kind of have a normal Christmas together because it's like an outlet for all of that stuff that they'd prefer not to have on Christmas Day and I think that's a really lovely thing and it does seem to capture that kind of feeling for people Like, what must it be like to be in Damon's shoes during those gigs I want to ask him about that like what's it like to be in his shoes before in the build up when he's on stage and after them but also and I think for people who have been familiar with Damien or have heard him in interviews before like part of me is going into this chat knowing that it could go in any number of really interesting directions all led by Damien himself so I'm kind of just going to go with that approach Mm. but one thing I will say I would love and we genuinely we haven't asked him about this beforehand so I don't know if this is going to happen I would love if we got a song out of him 
Now, if you've been listening since the start of the series, you'll know that now have been supporting the show since the beginning, which we really are very, very grateful for. You'll also know that I'm a big football fan. Killian is a big rugby fan mm-hmm. and that it's a really good time of year to be both of those things as we head into a fairly packed month of sport. And when there's sport to be watched, now is exactly what you need. They've got not one but two sports memberships available, meaning you can watch Sky Sports, TNT Sports and Premier Sports and it's really as simple to sign up. There are a frankly astounding number of matches coming up in the Premier League in the next couple of weeks. Beginning with Man United against Chelsea, that's on tonight, kick-offs at a quarter past eight. Man United then play Liverpool at Anfield in about ten days' time and I really, I mean, like, what more do you need to say about a fixture like that? And... Liverpool play Arsenal on the 23rd of December, which is a lovely slash potentially stressful way to ease into Christmas, depending on where you stand. (laughs) Now, as I've mentioned over the last couple of weeks, Champions Cup Rugby is back this weekend also. And in one of the all-time great opening round fixtures, Leinster play La Rochelle away this Sunday afternoon. And the following weekend, Munster travel to Exeter to take on the Chiefs, which producer Killian here beside me insists that it will be What did you say? Just a stepping stone to continental (laughs) domination for Munster this season? I did. (laughs) Yeah, so whether it's for a day, a month, or a season of continental domination, now has the membership for you. I know which one of those options I'll be choosing. I'm sure I do too. (laughs) Right, let's head over to the home of this week's guest, Damien Dempsey. How are you doing? Good to you. How are you getting on? Good to you. How are you getting on? This is Killian. I'm Killian. Lovely to meet you, Dave. How are you? 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 I've been holding on to feelings From a wrong done long ago It's like picking up a hot coal For the throne Damien, you're very welcome. Thanks, Reggie. Thank you very much for inviting us into your home. You're currently recording your album. Yeah, yeah, I'm indeed, yeah. I don't know what people are going to think of it, but it's none of my business, so I'm just going to stick it out there and move on to the next one. What do you think of it? I like it, yeah. Gives me a lift, so positive album, full of hope. I always wonder this, musicians, when you are writing something or recording something, because you've been doing it a long time now, Mm. do you have a sense of how it'll be received or which songs will land in a particular way nah you never know never know you never know really it's very hard to judge some song you think is wonderful can fall flat you know and a song you think is okay people go crazy for so it's very hard to yeah you have to just let it go the process of recording is that enjoyable or intense or I love it yeah some people hate it I love it I love the studio. Right. When you get in there and start working, sort of magic comes, you know, sometimes, you know. It's just, you get the uh, tunnel bolts of inspiration and, you know, 
something there. You went in that morning and you have something brand new and fresh and just uh, invigorating, you know, some new bit of music or new line. It really uh, moves you or hits home or, you know, hits you deep, you know. And I wasn't there the few hours before, you know, so it just feels sort of magical, you know. That inspiration that you get from, I don't know where, a good place, I think, you know, comes from a good place. When are you expecting to release it? I think in the spring, I think Sony are going to put it out for us, you know, Sony Ireland. I just hope it gives people a lift, you know, because a lot of people, a lot of people seem to be very down and uh, about the world and what's going on and that, you know. And the phones, I think, have people, well, I know a lot of young people are sort of, are getting depression because of phones, you know, they're on the phones all the time and um, it's like the phones are telling them what to think, you know, they're telling them, they're not thinking for themselves or something, you know. I think you need uh, spaces of time, chunks of chunks of time away from the phone that you just uh, process stuff and think about the world and life and that, you know, and come up with your own conclusions instead of being told what to think by the little rectangular yoke in your hand, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, a lot of kids don't touch the earth. Like, I'm not sure, I'm sure you're the same when I was young, I'd be out in the muck and climbing trees and... Mm-hmm. We used to walk the tracks, train tracks out to make hayfields out, and, you know, Port Marnock and that, you know. But we are always sort of uh, touching the earth, but a lot of kids don't touch the earth anymore, you know. I'd you know. be out in the fields running after a football, playing yeah. with friends. I didn't own a phone. I never got interested in computer games. It was all activity outdoors with people. Yeah, sure. Exactly, yeah. I was 25 before I got a phone. I refused for years, you know. They were around since I was uh, a teenager, but I just wouldn't get one. They just drove me mad. Then my manager at the time uh, convinced me to get one and I had it for about a week and I fucked in the Livy. <laughs> he was running me so much I just was what about the Livy when I got up? Then he said, get a beeper, will you? And I got a beeper and that went to the Livy. A beeper? I've made yeah. him, yeah. <laughs> then a new manager convinced me to get one. He just said, stick it and put it on silent, you know. And just Then I found out a way to handle the phone. I just keep changing my number. Mm. Every few months it's changing number. So the one I have will be gone by be gone. Easter. Yep. Really? Yeah. I've changed it a bit, say, 15 times now. Just to get headspace, you know, because otherwise the fucking thing is going all day. And Couldn't just switch it off? As opposed to get, getting a new number seems a bit drastic, is it? It's a bit big. Uh, sometimes you be giving people your number, they ask you, and you're, you're, too, you know, you're too soft not to give it to them. And then hmm. They're fucking plaguing you then, you know. <laughs> To learn to say no, it's <laughs> it, be yeah. easier. Yeah. Um, they were only drill. Fuck off. Yeah, try that. <laughs> what do you, Ronnie got into a taxi one time at Dublin Airport. Ronnie drew, and he just said to that man in the taxi, the driver, you know, Greystones, now talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said that your album and your music has the intention to lift people. Yeah. Your Vicar Street gigs are described in lots of different ways by lots of different people, but it always comes across as it's something more than a musical performance. It's something more than a gig. The build-up to those gigs, what's it like for you? I just try and get fit, you know, get my voice in good shape and do a bit of yoga and breathing. Okay. In the sea, climb out, do a bit of, yeah, cold water swimming or cold showers and... Just get a bit zen, you know. That's the preparation. Yeah. yeah. Like none of those things are to do with music. They're all to do with you and grounding yourself and grounding yourself, yeah, getting 
getting uh, sort of calm so we can give the audience just uh, the night of our lives, you know, the sing-song of the century. <laughs> and just have them on cloud nine going out the door and they'll be feeling good for a few days afterwards, you know. Just lift them. I know that's the aim and I know you repeatedly achieve that. But when you approach a gig with that intention, does that ever feel pressurising? Oh, no, no. This is, this is, I'm in the dressing room before the show and I can hear them all chanting my name, you know, so... It's kind of like... You know... I know what I have to do, you know. I think... I don't know, it... it I've done gigs really sick, but, you know, feeling really bad, like, you know. I was on a drip one time and I had to just, you know, the drip in the dressing room, I got off the drip and my arm was in a sling and all. I went out and done the show and that, you know. When when did you do that? Uh, that was uh, in the Donamede Inn. That's my local pub. A few gigs there, you know. You literally had a drip in you. And drip, yeah, you had, uh, like, it was cellulitis. Okay. It's torn at the septicemia. Pretty sick now. But I still done the shows. And I nearly collapsed now, halfway through them. But uh kept going. <sighs> Take a lot from me not to not to go out in front of the audience, you know, and sing. There's a but shot then, of you in the documentary Love Yourself Today. A close up of your face before the show. You can hear the cha- the crowd chanting your name and you have your hands together as if in prayer and your eyes are closed. Can you put into words what that feels like it looks like the most amazing position to be in I'm just sort of meditating you know when you meditate you, you sort of feel the the soul within you know you can feel your spirit when you stop your head racing you know, it's a very spiritual vibe at the shows everyone says that you know a friend of mine brought along a fellow who was a sort of scientist you know and he's atheist and all that but he, even he said you know, there's, some sort of, there's something going on there at them shows there's something I couldn't put my finger on, you know. I think it's just when you get a uh, hundred thousand people singing. When you sing, you have to focus. You have to remember the next line, try and stay in time and nearly in key. So it's uh, meditative. So when you get a thousand people meditating together, singing positive lyrics, you know, arm in arm, it's uh, the vibration that's created, the frequency that's created. It's a, it's a, it's a low frequency, you know. It's, it's very beautiful. And people get very high, a natural high, you know. Lots of people in recovery come along to the shows and just say they, they get an incredible high off it, you know. Mm. So it's not all people drinking and that. Is it a high for you during oh, the yeah, performance? Oh, yeah, big time, yeah, absolutely. But uh, I'm not there to get high, I'm there to give them the best night of their lives. So that's, it's all about them. Because without them, I'm on a kangaroo hammer. Or I'm doing a, a dodgy door somewhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Which is two great things, security people, you know, to keep us safe when we're out and, uh, you know, construction workers build our skills in our hospitals, you know, two very honourable um, pursuits and jobs, but uh, I'm just, I'm better at singing. The audience give me the, you know, the opportunity to be a singer and a writer. Mm. So I have to give them the best night ever, you know, because, you know, that's my only income is live shows. That's how I bought this house, you know, that's how I paid the bills, you know. Mm. So I'm very uh, grateful to the people who come to the shows. What they want, you know, I give them the best night of their lives. That frequency or the vibration you speak of there, was there a stage in your career or of you doing live shows where you start to realise that was happening 
in a more pronounced way or were you noticing something that wasn't happening in your early days or did you always kind of experience that? I remember I was out in Ballyframe Rock School uh, I think it was 19, 18, 18 and uh, at the end of the year they do a little concert in the the back of the it was and I had this song called Roller Coaster and I just remembered all this you know I've been playing it in, in classes in Ballyframe and all the, all the young kids loved it you know all my classmates and I'd done the gig in the back of the end and the L sang along with it, you know. And it was just magical when the L sang. The chorus is with me. And I just thought, this is something there's something very special. I knew it though before that, you know, when, when we'd be at Sing Songs in Cabra Wester, my grannies are down in Irish town or Kulak or around Donamate here, neighbours' houses or cousins or aunties or uncles, uh, you'd have to sing song and no instruments, just singing. And when someone sang a song and did Come, come to the chorus and the whole room joined in and it was like wow mm. it's a magical feeling I just felt uh, it was like heaven I just felt you're, you're in heaven the slice of heaven and it felt safe and warm at the same song I'm part of a tribe you know so I just tried to I knew that was very special so I just tried to replicate that on stage then at the gigs the sing song I, I remember you know the sing songs I remember I just try and replicate that in a big venue, in a big room. And I hope the people get the same feeling I got when I was younger. That sense of belonging and... Yeah. Absolutely, and being safe. And, and that warm feeling inside, you know. Hmm. I've heard you use the word recluse to describe yourself. Yeah. Um, what do you mean by that? I just like uh, being alone. I need a lot of, uh, of alone time. But I'm a lone wolf, you know. Have you always been like that? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah, it'd be like uh, two brothers. They were seven and eight years older than me, you know, so it was like, kind of like being an only child, you know. And the mother and father were out working. So we was alone a lot, you know. Uh, yeah, alone a lot. So I just got used to my own company. And imagination, just thinking, you know, figuring things out for myself. So how does that, being a recluse, to use your word, how does that play out day to day, week to week? Would you actively, like, stay in this house and, and, and discourage people from calling? Would the phone be switched off? Uh, yeah, just during the week, I'd be yeah, just writing on that, you know. Going up out, swimming in the sea. We meet a couple of mates for the got the movies or something. On the weekend, there's a few drinks and see people, but during the week, it's just you know, just me, just myself. And you've a comfort in that solitude. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'd be lonely if there was lots of people around me, you know, all the yeah. time. Yeah. The sea, your relationship to the sea sounds like it's very important to you. Yeah. Yeah, Daniel. Getting back to the source, you know. You can never be closer to the mother nature than when you're up to your neck and all, you know. So, uh, and it's just very good for your body. Lots of minerals in the sea. Lots of great stuff like magnesium. It's very good for you. And the cold water uh, makes all your blood rush into your vital organs, so it detoxes them. So there's so many benefits. So many benefits, you know. 
I remember the 40 foot is the place I go most often. Mm. And it became, myself and my wife had IVF treatment for about four years. Nothing worked. And it became the place we would go to after every failed round, every negative pregnancy test, miscarriage. It was like, right, get in the car, we're going to the 40 foot. Mm. And we jump in, heartbroken, lost, lonely, angry, full of self-pity, loads of different things. not even describing it properly but when we come out we'd just be relieved of some of that and we mm. have taken on something that we didn't have beforehand and the rest of the day would be more manageable sure and I, I don't know what happens there I think Danu gives you a little hug really I think so yeah, yeah mother nature yeah have you always had that relationship with nature uh, in my younger life, I'd have scoffed at this talk. If I'd have heard a conversation like this, I'd go, those two outfits need to just <laughs> get out, go for a night out. <laughs> my younger me would, wouldn't have been into that. Yeah. It, 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 were you always like that? Yeah, see, but I grew up swimming in Hout because uh, we're on the dart line there. Hout Junction, done a mate. There's only three stops away, you know? Three or four stops. So we just jump on the train, you know? Bonk the train out of Hout every, you know? Every day in the summer holidays and we'd begin to see. Go out with all the older guys, all the older lads. And uh, swim. But yeah, we'd always out in, out in the hayfield, like I said. Or climbing trees up in Deer Park. And uh, I think we, you know, it's, it's only very recently we're living in concrete. For a long, long time before that we were forest people. And all of Ireland was a big oak for us, to, you know. So uh, I try and get to the, there's a native night, a night wood up behind the Deer Park Hotel there. And I grew up there, like that, you know. I walk up there. Alone? Yeah. Go up there through, yeah. Alone, yeah. With a big knife. <laughs> just, <laughs> just in case. Sure, why not? Because <laughs> it is a bit creepy up there, you know. That... Upbringing you speak of, which mentioned, you know, you mentioned swimming and when did music come in? Like if you were an athlete, if you were a professional footballer in front of me, I would ask a question like, you know, how early in your life was your talent obvious? Was the path you're on now the one you were always destined to take? Was this the ambition or the dream since you were 10 or 12? Mm. Like, what's your answer to that in relation to music and the career you have now? I think I was... um a fella from East Belfast, guitar player called Eric Bell. He played with Tin Lizzy. Okay. Was either him or Philo? Was the reason I started playing. Phil Linna had just died in 1986, and uh, everyone was mourning him, playing his music, you know. And uh, I was about 11 and just heard all this beautiful music coming. Jeez, that's, that's, that's deadly. Who was that? Who was that? And I think my, my brother called me in the front room, he stuck on the vinyl uh, whiskey in the jar and just the first notes rang out, you know, Eric Bell. Then the bass kicked in and Philo started singing in his raspy voice, you know, the whiskey in the jar. And I just, it was like someone flicked a light switch and I said, I have to get a guitar. Really, I want to I I do that, I want to play like that. I want to sound like that. I want to be able to do that, you know. And that's... That's when I started bugging me uh, parents for maybe could you get me a guitar this Christmas, you know. 
And they did, they, they did fair play to them. And yeah, just hooked to her like a fish to water. I fell in love with this piece of tree wood, you know, and strings. That was it then, from the age of 11? Yeah, 12, yeah. I yeah. the guitar at 12, yeah. That was it. Tunnel vision. I could see, you could see myself, I, was, I don't know why, I could see myself on stage with big crowds, you know, big audiences. Dreaming that this might one day happen or visualising that it will? It was just coming to me, it was just in my head. I wasn't really, I don't think I was trying to visualise it. Mm. It was just in my head, you know. And it came through, mm. thankfully. It's great. Jamie Bartlett. I feel very lucky because a lot of people we knew who were very talented musicians and songwriters had to, they couldn't afford to be a musician, you know. Mm. You did a run of shows in the Abbey. Yeah. And you were really open about your life and some of your experiences and the role of music in your life. Yeah. One of the experiences you touched on was your parents separating when you were yeah. in your teens. Sure, yeah. Um. Am I right that that was kept secret for a while? Yeah, uh, I was just a, a bit embarrassed, you know, because on the road of 75 houses, out of street, me old street, nobody had split. So I was just, I was just embarrassed, like, thinking, what the fuck is wrong with us? We, we were the only ones who, you know, the family was broken. Your parents are split, you know? So I just didn't uh, tell me friends. But the only one, anyway. How long did you keep it from them? It a, year, I, a year and a half, I think. Okay. Uh, you don't know fucking, you know. See what's happened. Because you thought that there was that revealed something wrong with you. Yeah. Yeah, back then nobody split, you know. Well nobody around on here. Nobody around on the mate. Broke up, you know. Didn't know anybody. Divorce was illegal. Yeah. In Ireland, you know. The dark ages I call it. Divorce was illegal, homosexuality was illegal. Um Abortion was illegal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mad when you think about it, you know. The power, like, you know, that them fellas in the frock still had over us yeah. back then was mad. I'm, you know, we still, we still go to church all the time and say a prayer, you know. Still spiritual, you know. I wouldn't call myself a Catholic, but I think it's good to hold on to. We were obviously very spiritual people, I think. I don't think atheism is good. At least be agnostic, you know. I'm pretty, well, I'm, I'm sort of very short of something else there, you know, because I've felt it and seen it and heard it and lots of times, you know. So I don't ignore it anymore or put it down to coincidence or anything like that. But uh, in the old days, you know, uh, everybody had their role in, in the tribe and uh, some people, certain people in the tribe would be sort of, you know, have this bit of a, I don't know what you call it. They'd be saying things, you know, hearing things, feeling things that other people didn't, and they'd be they'd be believed. But now with the, all the individualism, if people don't feel it themselves or hear it, you know, or sense it themselves, they don't. They think it's not there, you know. Mm. So keeping up in mind is all I'm saying. Um, like yeah, when my father died there, you know, he uh, I was saying it in the Abbey. He had that, you know that. A few, a few things happened that week, but just the the one major thing that happened, I, he uh, he 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 had learned a song called "Time to Say Goodbye" 
to sink to his partner, Ethan. And uh, as he was dying, we were playing well, playing the music, and we put on that song to play him, and uh, he died in the middle of that song, you know. Time to say goodbye, and uh, then the next day I was down in Rohini, having a drink, writing the eulogy, you know, in the hurdles. But uh, this woman at the bar just started up a song. She was sitting there, a real elegant looking lady, sort of olive skin. Found out she was Italian, and she's just sitting at the bar, and it's all men, it's obvious all old men in there. Mm-hmm. She starts singing, Time to Say Goodbye, you know, about nine o'clock, you know. I was going there for fuck's sake. And I asked her, like, uh, what made you, you know, start singing? And do you sing in public? She said, I never sing in public. And I said, why just sing that song? I said, I don't know. Something came over me to sing it. I never sing in pubs. I never, it's the first time I've ever sang in a pub. So, uh, uh, there's all these things, you know. Keep your eyes peeled and your ears open and your heart open. Your dad's second anniversary, I think, was last week. Yeah. What was that day like for you? Oh, yeah, we, we got together, had a meal, had a family and then had a sing song. Really? Yeah. I sang one of his songs that he sang. I've heard you speak before. He, he he spent several weeks, his final few weeks in hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get to see much of him during that period? Uh, we were allowed in one at the time, you know, it was COVID time, so it's was going one at the time. The same. Tough going. Was it? Yeah. yeah. Tough going, yeah. Yeah. Let's see our, you know, same wasting away and a nappy and all that stuff, you know. Not knowing where he was now. It was tough going, but I was singing them songs and holding his hand to give him my old kiss, you know. But it was time to go. Time to move house. And uh, he didn't want to, he knew he was, living, he, was, knew he, was he was losing the old marbles, you know, and he didn't want to be around, so he was just saying, just, just fuck me out the window, will you? Stick me head down the fucking toilet. So he wanted to do. So, uh, a happy release. For him, possibly. What was that like for you, though? I just want to see somebody love suffering, you know. Mm. Just, just want to see them in pain. I've never Conf- been through that. Confusion. Let them go. See them again. I keep talking to them. And if you're in trouble, ask them for help, you know. That's what I do. Mm. What kind of relationship did you have with them? Not very close. We lived together. I was... Me and him lived together for 30-something years. Wow. It's so great. A few hours now. But uh, that's, that's, that's families. Mm. Has your relationship evolved in any way since he died? I often hear people describe that. Um... I just thankful to him, you know. He's got me like a tire and that, you know. And uh, let me live in the house and that, you know, with him. You know, when times are laying, like, when the music wasn't going very well, you know. I lived there with him, you know, just the two of us. And, uh, toughen you up, you know. Be slagging it. Was he? Yeah, it'd be, you know, it'd be fucking ripping the piss out of you. So, yes, you, you were able for it then when reviewers had knocked the, knocked the bollocks out of you. <laughs> when what? Reviewers would uh, tear, tear you apart, you know. You're oh, well, you get the... difficult criticism. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, you're ready, you know. Ready. 
He prepared you for the world. That's it. Yeah. That's it. What was your relationship with Shane McGowan like? I think he's somebody that we all have some sense of who he is. He is a role in all our lives, but I don't know many people who've spent time with him or in your case have known him and have performed with him. Yeah. Great crack. Very funny. Not very deep. You could have lectured in philosophy or politics or history, you know, had that intellect, the credible intellect, you know. You speak on any subject, you know. A huge uh, repertoire of songs and huge knowledge of music, all sorts of music. So, very interesting company. What a slagging fucker. Slag the bollocks out of you. <laughs> Rip you apart. So, yeah, great times. Can you remember your first meeting? Yeah, supporting him in Eamon Darlings. 25 years ago. Maybe. And he knew me. He knew me uh, music, you know, from New York. Bird, uh, I used to work in there. They had me on the jukebox. And that's where all the, the Irish kind of uh, literary crowd in New York would used to go. Rocky Sullivan's. And all the Republican crowd would go there as well. From the north. And uh, yeah, he heard me in there on the, on the jukebox. <clears throat> he said, that's a classic album, you know. They don't teach you shit in school, he said. It's a classic album. He said, Connolly's a song I wish I had a row. Then we sang Connolly, which gave me a great, a great boost in him. Mm, Again, yeah. when I was getting ripped apart by the viewers, I'd say, fuck them. They were they. Shane McGowan fucking likes me. What the hell with them? I remember they asked him, uh, will I have a drink, Shane? He says, yeah, I'll have a double gin and tonic and a double pea snaps and a pint gloss. He says, that's five fucking drinks, Shane. <laughs> that's what I was counting. Uh, I said, <laughs> that's five drinks. <laughs> so Bob, <laughs> I like, Bob, I think it was about 20 fucking quid back then. And he drank it. Will you have a drink, Damien? I said, yeah, give us five Guinness. And he bought me five Guinness. So I showed him the pyramid system how to drink them so they won't go dead, you know. So bell of each of them. And he goes, the pyramid system. <laughs> I think you have a problem with the drink, Damien. I said, if a problem for fucking paying, we're paying for it. Yeah, you fuck are you. Five <laughs> drinks. So yeah, good times are Shane. You visited him in hospital? Yeah, recently. I did, yeah. A few times, yeah. Uh, sat the same, you know, because his body was his body was given up. You could see his body was as head as sharp as a fucking tack, but uh, his body was was gone. Good luck, I'm out. You've worked me too hard, <laughs> which was a shame, you know, because his head was perfect. It seemed perfect to me. What a life, you know. What a legacy. He lived. He enjoyed himself, you know. But uh, tough, you know, tough old, tough old life, that rock and roll, hell-raising life, I think, you know. Do you ever allow yourself wonder what your legacy will be and what people will say after you move house, so to speak? Mm. I just hope the song go on helping people, you know. They can stick them on and... 
people say there's just a lot of healing in the songs and they get them through hard times, dark times in their lives, you know, they really help them, give them hope. So we just hope they continue to do that for people after I'm gone. If they do that, you know, be very happy. Bit of a ripple of love, you know, going out. Mm. Spreads into people and goes from them into other people and, you know, good vibration. Be very happy to leave that behind. Which I think is going to happen, so. I mean, work will be done. That's all good. Maybe I should have asked you this before we started recording, but any chance you'd play us out with a song? I'll tell you what, I'll do one and, and, and you know, if it's not up to scratch, we'll give it a go, You're the boss. Just came out of this fucker. Somebody's born today in a 
little way without them knowing. Let it go. Just let it go. little way don't you know can you dig it let it go let it go Badger's arse, but you get the idea. Wow, thank you so much. I know, but I, you know, you can hear the voices cracking, but the, the passion is there, you know. It always is. I've seen so many chat shows where musician guests sing, and I often look at the presenter who's only a few feet away, going, What's that like? And I've just got to experience what that like. Totally. It was amazing. Thank thanks, you thanks so much. much. And Thanks for inviting us into your home and being so open and I really wish you well with the gigs and everything beyond. Thanks a million. So we are back in the car just parked across the road from Damien's house. Yeah, and I think we've both said throughout the series, Richie, that it's been really, really lovely and almost odd in a way um, to have people welcome us into their homes in the way that they have done because... Obviously, we would never otherwise be there. And I think to sit across from Damien at his kitchen table, as he did what he's going to be doing for literally thousands of people over the coming weeks in Vicker Street, um, that was really special. Yeah, I was completely blown away by that. I really was. And that, of course, brings us to the end of what has been, for me anyway, a really special series of shows. Now, obviously, we had no idea when we started out, like I certainly didn't, how this would go at all. But it was all based on the belief, or the hope rather, that there are enough people out there that would be interested in hearing these kinds of conversations. And also, that we'd be able to find at least eight different people that would be interested and willing to take part. And to each one of those eight guests, Tommy, Katrina, Holly, Stephen, John, Slata, Terence and Damien, I really am so, so grateful for your openness and your generosity in sharing so much of yourselves when we met and as Killian said, for inviting us into your homes the way that you all did. And I really want to say a huge thank you for the last time to you, producer Killian, <laughs> sitting next to me here. This has been our first time working so closely with one another on anything and it feels impossible now to imagine that I could have done this with anyone else. Also to our executive producer, second captains, Mark Horgan, who steered us brilliantly through the series behind the scenes. Thank you very much. But maybe my biggest thanks of all goes to all of you that have listened in such big numbers and especially, and I really mean this, to those of you that got in touch either by email or directly to me on Instagram with your thoughts and your comments on the show and with your lovely words of encouragement throughout. Every message really was appreciated. 
And if you did like the show, and particularly if you'd like to hear a second series, a really helpful way of showing your support is to subscribe, rate and review the podcast and to spread the word. This really does help to bring the show to new listeners. And it's also the reason we've been able to stay in the top 10 of the podcast charts for the last eight weeks, which is bloody lovely. So for the very last time this year, I want to remind you that episode is brought to you by our friends at Now. If you haven't given Now a go yet, there's the perfect excuse waiting for you just this evening because Man United play Chelsea kicking off at 8.15, as I mentioned earlier. And just around the corner is both Liverpool Man United and Liverpool Arsenal. And to be honest, they're just a few highlights. There really is a huge amount of Premier League football coming up this month. And don't forget, there's a repeat of last season's Champions Cup final this Sunday as La Rochelle play Leinster in round one of Europe. And Munster play Exeter the following weekend. Again, they're just two great matches from the opening rounds. There's so many to choose from. If that sounds up your street, then why not give now a go? Okay, that really is it for this series. Massive thanks to Damien for that chat and the beautiful performance of Let It Go. That really was a series highlight for me. And thanks as always to my wonderful producer. That's you, Killian. Thank you very much, Richie. I'll see you in 2024. Episode is part of the ACAST Creator Network and is a Second Captain's podcast. Wishing you all a lovely Christmas and a happy, healthy and peaceful new year. Bye for now. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captains. Second captain, first captain, whatever.